Goodbye. Hi everyone, this is Andy with another one of these bonus episodes. Um, this episode is a little bit different. It's actually a recording of an event that took place in Philadelphia this past week. Um, on Monday, it was organized by my friend Anne Ishii, who is an avid TTSG pod listener and also the executive director of the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's a cool group. You should look them up, you know, support them, look them up on social media, uh, Google them, you know, and uh, I'll put some links in the show notes. And Anne was, uh, she wanted to organize a conversation focused on this question, this, you know, perpetual question, I guess, of Asian diasporic representations, the problems with it, its limits, but, you know, also why it's important. So the first voice you'll hear is Anne. She is the MC of the event. The second voice you'll hear is Bakuya Timani, who is a professor of English and Gender and Sexuality Studies and Asian American Studies at Swarthmore College, which, you know, is like 20 minutes south of Philadelphia. Um, Baki's new book is called Unseeing Empire, and it's focused on this question of the search for Asian American representation in art, but also why it can be kind of unsatisfying and how do different artists um, engage with that sense of uh, dissatisfaction or failure in different ways. And then I'm the third voice uh, in the conversation. And, you know, we raise these topics, talk about these topics, I guess, that we've talked about on the show a lot about, um, you know, how successful representation can be, what are its limits, how do you go beyond it, but also why it's sort of um, this inescapable problem we always come back to. Um, and we kind of revived this older conversation we've had on the show about the representation strategies of Kamala Harris and to a lesser extent, Andrew Yang. And the interesting thing here is, you know, Baki is, um, you know, from the South South Asian diaspora. She's from a South Indian family that actually grew up in Tokyo, and now she studied and works in the United States. So her reference point is the Indian diaspora, right? And mine, of course, is the sort of Chinese, Taiwanese, East Asian diaspora. And so there's some interesting cross-diasporic comparisons that happen. Uh, there's also a nerdy discussion about Asian studies versus Asian American studies in the university setting that I think could be generalized beyond the university. And, uh, you know, just uh, lots of different topics, uh, lots of different directions related to these topics. So, you know, uh, look up Asian Arts Initiative um, in Philadelphia on Twitter and Google. Um, look up Baki's work. I'll put it all in the show notes. Uh, and the last thing is to say that, uh, you know, we actually did this event in person. We were very careful. We all took tests right before um, we came in. We all wore N95 or N94 masks um, and we all stood six feet apart. So it was basically like we were in the NBA bubble. Um, but, uh, the result is therefore the audio is a little bit muzzled. I think we're all pretty clear, but there's a little bit of a softening effect from wearing these masks. So that's one thing. And the other thing is there's a couple moments where the audio actually kind of flaked for about 10 or 15 seconds. So I've gone back and edited in some, um, nice TTSG theme music in those moments. And that might be why it's a little disjointed at those moments. And just in case you're confused. But otherwise, I thought I thought the audio actually sounds pretty good. And shout out to Rashid and Dan for coming in and helping us with the um, sound technology. Also, this conversation was streamed on YouTube on the Asian Arts Initiative channel. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, you can also just watch us have the conversation as well. Um, okay, onto the show. Time to say. Hi everybody, welcome to Asian Arts Initiative. I'm Executive Director Anne Ishii, and tonight I am the moderator for this evening's book talk. I'm really excited to be introducing two very smart people, but first I just want to tell you a little bit about our organization. Asian Arts Initiative is a community-based arts organization, and we believe in the power of art to build community. We're based in North Chinatown, Philadelphia, and these days also in the galaxy of the internet. But we are just stewards on this land, which was swindled by the state's namesake. So before we begin, our staff want to respectfully acknowledge that our building is situated on land stolen from its original holders, the Delaware Lenape. We wish to pay our respects to their people past, present, and future. I like to read the poem Manhattan is a Lenape word by Natalie Diaz to open book talks, but I'll instead encourage all of you to go check out her new book, Postcolonial Love Poems. Oh my God, I just chewed that up. Postcolonial Love Poems by Natalie Diaz. Check it out. It's a very beautiful book. 
So speaking of books, um, we are in a very COVID safe environment. I wanted to just assure everybody watching online right now, you can see I am in this uh, nondescript space station and you'll see my colleagues soon. Uh, we have all been tested today and we're all, I'm double masked and we're wearing N95 and cloth masks. And just wanna reassure everybody that we are practicing as much precaution and responsibility as we thought was prudent in this situation, but also felt like this event would really be much more significant if we could all talk sort of in the same space. I mean, it has been a year of this, right? So no more talking head Zoom chats. We're gonna try to do this in person, safe and at a distance. Um, you can't tell, but I am a good, probably 12 feet away from our speakers. We're gonna stay masked. End of preachy COVID safety rant. And now I wanna tell you about our speakers. So, First, I'd like to introduce to you Bakirati Mani. Uh, she is a professor of English literature and the coordinator of the Gender and Sexuality Studies program at Swarthmore College. She's the author lately of Unseeing Empire, Photography, Representation, South Asian America out of Duke University Press, just came out in December, and Aspiring to Home, South Asians in America from Stanford University Press. Born in Bombay and raised in Tokyo. Uh, she's probably the best Japanese speaker in the group. Actually, we just had a funny conversation about this. Mani's research and teaching focuses on Asian American visual and exhibition cultures. With us is Andrew Liu. He is an assistant professor of history at Villanova University. His book, T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India, was published in 2020, last year, from Yale University Press. He researches and teaches modern China, global and comparative history, and the history of political economy, and is the co-host of one of my favorite Asian American podcasts, Time to Say Goodbye. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that podcast in the course of this evening. So why are we here? Well, this book talk actually began as a conversation between Bucky and I a few months ago when she was preparing for the launch of her book, Unseen Empire. And we got to just talking about Asian American representation actually in pop cultural media, not so much in academia or in arts administration, but just, you know, what are we watching on Netflix? And shows like Never Have I Ever and you know, by the way, Mindy Kaling, who also did Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu, so she's just been having such a big year. Um, so, you know, incidentally, things like that are happening, and recently there was a trailer that was released for a movie by Eddie Wong, uh, of course, from Fresh Off the Boat fame, this movie Boogie, and there's just a lot of chatter, right? And especially with younger folks, and certainly with our constituents, this conversation always kinds of comes back to this place of, is this enough? Is this adequate Asian American representation in media? Or is it even accurate? Are we proud of it? Are we happy with it? And most recently, this has culminated in Kamala Harris's inauguration as the first South Asian and black female vice president in the White House. And that's a mouthful and I wanna unpack all of what that means, why we have to describe her in that specific way. And so with that, I wanted to pass my mic to Bucky to talk about, you know, maybe just sort of expand a little bit on this question. Is it enough? Are, is this, should we be satisfied with the way Asian Americans are represented in media and political and popular culture today? Thanks, and I'm so happy to be here with you and with Andy, super excited for our in-person live conversation. Um, I think that this question of representation is exactly the question that's animating my book, Unseeing Empire. Um, I think as someone who has been living in the United States now for 25 years, I came to the United States first as an international student in college. And at the time when I was in college in the 1990s, the question that most preoccupied us as, as undergraduates was when can we see more of ourselves in popular media and culture? How or where are we going to see images of ourselves? And by ourselves, I mean people of color most broadly and Asian Americans 
maybe more specifically, and even within that, South Asian Americans like myself. At the time, I didn't really think of myself as South Asian American. I thought of myself as an Indian student from Japan studying in the United States. Nonetheless, the kinds of popular media representations that um, I saw really didn't come out of the United States. They came out of England. Films like Gurinder Chadda's Baji on the Beach. Or maybe one example of a film from the United States was Mira Nair's Mississippi Masala. So at the time that I was in college in the 90s, we thought that if we saw more of ourselves in popular culture, that would solve our feelings of not belonging. So here we are some 30 years later, and I'm teaching Asian American studies at Swarthmore. And in the classroom with my wonderful students, they turn to me and say, you know, we're not seeing enough of ourselves. And I think, oh, what does that mean? Right. Netflix has entire streams of films by really prominent producers and directors, um, people of color, South Asian and Asian American. Again, not just on streaming surfaces, but also on mainstream television. What does it mean to say you're not getting to see enough of yourself on popular media? We now, as you were just saying, and have a South Asian and Black woman who is vice president of the United States. Can we now claim that we've seen enough of ourselves, that we've reached some kind of pinnacle of power? I think what I've been so um, moved by and really curious about is where does our desire to see ourselves come from? Can, we, can it ever be satisfied? Um, and if not, why is that? And so part of what I try and write about in this book is that the project of representation is a really complicated project, right? And it has, um, it has very complicated histories of empire and imperialism that shape our very desire to see ourselves represented in a particular way. Um, but I think what we also know is that even if we see ourselves, that nagging feeling of not quite belonging doesn't go away. Right. So why doesn't it go away? I think that's what I'm really curious about. And Andy, I'd love to hear your take on this coming from, you know, your own discipline as a historian. Yeah, I mean, one thing I was thinking when I was reading through your book, you very starkly at the beginning talk about how kind of this question of when diaspora or people of color, whatever minority group, look at a piece of art, you, at first you might want to self-identify with it. That's right. But then you kind of, in a very striking way, say there's a kind of a sense of failure that you can never actually like feel complete or whole. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what that, maybe we could talk about this in more concrete terms. Um, you know, with this year in politics, we talked, we just briefly mentioned, you know, you have, uh, it's kind of a joke, but not really a joke. You have Kamala, I have Andrew Yang, <laughs> and we have sort of like the most, in the first, for the first time in U.S. history, we yeah. have the closest thing to standings for ourselves on the national political stage, and yours actually won you know, <laughs> was on a winning ticket. Mine, mine was not, but we'll see in, yeah. with the New York City mayor race. And what's kind of striking is, like, I feel like nobody, I'm not sure we care, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I don't, I'm not sure we care to the same degree that, obviously, Obama mm -hmm. mo mobilized um, black voters or just, like, POC voters or POC, or just, or just like, you know, very uh, POC-friendly white liberals, right? Mm -hmm. It just motivated everyone in a way mm -hmm. that maybe... It, 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 but in contrast to that, it feels like Kamala and Andrew did not did, mm -hmm. did not do that yet. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? And maybe is that connected to your argument in your book about how, like, trying to self-identify with representation ultimately always kind of is a little disappointing? Yeah, I think I think this is a hard one. And maybe one way I can start to talk about that is by thinking about Kamala Harris's um, image in the public sphere. Yeah. Uh, so there were a number of photographs that were distributed online of Kamala Harris um, during initially her run for president, right? Yeah. Um, and a number of these photographs uh, captured her family in India. Um, and so there's, there's one particular photograph that I, I want to talk about, which is an image of Kamala Balachandran. And it's with their... Uh, <clears throat> It's with their grandparents in Chennai, India. Uh, I just have the picture here in front of me, yeah. so I'm taking a look at it. But the thing that's so moving about this picture, I think there's two things. There, it's an undated photograph, so I'm going to say that it's maybe 20 or 25 years ago. Um, in looking at the photograph, you can see how the Harris campaign distributed this photograph to say, uh, look at Kamala Harris, she is South Asian too. Yeah. She's Indian too, <laughs> right? And there's no greater... 
uh, maybe proof of that than an entire family and, you know, an yeah. entire group of women in sar saris. Yeah, yeah. But there's two things that I want to kind of call our attention to in this image. One is that um, you'll see that Kamala Harris's grandparents uh, in the center of the frame are not just Indians, they're also upper caste Tamil Brahmins. And you can see that if you're familiar with um, the way that um, men and women dress, Kamala uh, Harris's grandmother is wearing a nine-yard sari, which is really typical of uh, Tamil Brahmin um, women. Harris and um, Mina, uh, Maya Harris, rather, are both wearing saris. They look adorable. You know, <laughs> they look really close to their grandparents. And so on the one hand, I think of this photograph as um, a testament to their feeling of belonging and identification with their Indian family or their family in India. But on the other hand, I'm also looking at this photograph as something that reminds me of what I felt like when I went to India as a young child, right? Being with my very large and loving extended family whom I am very close to. And yet, because I grew up outside of India, when I visited India, I would also wear clothes that you know, were not the clothes that I would normally wear on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when I look at this photograph, I'm looking at Kamala Harris's huge smile, but I'm also looking at how she might be a little bit discomfited, mm. right? Maybe not quite at ease. Mm. Um, and so what does it mean for Kamala Harris to occupy this uneasy sense of belonging, both in the United States as well as in South Asia? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because, I mean, I'm, I don't actually recall her talking too much about this aspect of her background until, um, you know, we talked about this on, on uh, aforementioned podcast, time to say goodbye. Uh, about <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, for anyone who knows anything about South Asia uh, or follows it at all, you know, I, I studied it for a bit. There's all these other questions that arise, like such as questions of caste, mm -hmm. class, region, all that stuff. And that's never discussed. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be curious over the next four years to see if it ever does get discussed or mm -hmm. if it just never does. Because, you know, if you talk to uh, people in South Asia and in India, South Asian Americans, they are constantly talking about these um, social divisions, communal and you know, religious divisions, class divisions. And so it's very bizarre that when she when she's discussing the U.S. context, it just becomes flat. Yes. You know, and she's just she's just brown, black. You know? That's right. She's basically a color. That's right. More than she is a ethnicity or a person with a history. That's right. I think that that's a really interesting point, how, how she becomes flattened into a person without a history. And we know, you know, and you and I have had conversations about how, in fact, Kamala Harris embodies really important histories, histories of empire, yeah. histories of right. post-independence, uh, histories of post-colonialism. Her father was an immigrant from Jamaica. Her mother was an immigrant from India. They came to Berkeley right at the cusp of independence for both of their countries, yeah. right? So Kamala Harris is also embodies these multiple histories, these um, histories of actually British empire yeah, exactly. in the United States, right? What joins together Jamaica and India is the history of British empire. When these, you know, when um, Shamla Gopalan and Donald Harris came to Berkeley, those histories didn't disappear. Yeah. In fact, at least my understanding of um, Shamla Gopalan's history is that she was really animated by her own experiences, you know, in India um, to join um, black movements in the United States, right? Yeah. And civil rights movements in the United States. So there's a direct connection there between what's going on for a young woman coming out of a post-colonial, post-independence co country in the United States and really identifying yeah. with, um, you know, with the power of um, civil rights yeah. movements. Yeah, no, I feel like we're getting into the territory that we're most comfortable with, which is like academic gossip. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where do people come from when they go to school? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we've, you know, and this is something that, I, I, that also jumped out when you look into her story at all. There's this, well, the interesting thing is, you know, like you said, there are British post-colonial you know, people that are from that part of the world, but they come to the U.S. Yeah. Berkeley is super far away from London, right? Yeah. So what's going on with, like, you know, the shift of empire after World War II from London to, not Berkeley, but, you know, America, yeah. right? <laughs> so there's that aspect. But then, yeah, there's this other aspect I think that's interesting because I think in the 60s, this might be a bit of a polemic, so I don't know if I really believe this, but at their moment in the 60s, right, the way this all was structured was the world was like this, you know, like this, there's a, there's a center of gravity in, in the empire and there's all these like rays, you know, shooting out around mm -hmm. the world, but they all have to converge upon the empire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it used to be London and then now it's like the United States at mm -hmm. this kind of 
melting pot or whatever, fruit salad or whatever metaphor you want to use, mm -hmm. to describe the United States. And that's kind of um, this really interesting moment. Uh, and it's very singular. And, you know, maybe Kamala Harris is only a product of this one place in the world mm -hmm. at the time. But it seems like now, and we might get, this might bring us back to this question of, you know, in the 21st century, why is representation in the United States context perhaps uh, not fully satisfying? Mm -hmm. It seems like that fruit salad melting pot thing has actually, is actually like being projected back out to the rest of the world. And you don't have to come to the United States to have, um, to, to see like different parts of the world mixing together. Like we talked about this, you know, before, like, uh, you know, your, your family background, for instance, or many other family backgrounds, you have people from across different parts of Asia mm. or the post-colonial world mm. going across that part of the world without having to go to the United States first. Right. Right. And it seems like with, you know, globalization, neoliberalism, whatever word you want to use mm. to describe the last four or five decades, it seems like the United States has been kind of decentered. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have Berkeley to bring Donald Harris and mm. Shamala together. You can have these stories of like, you know, and this, I guess the looming question is, you know, China mm -hmm. is in the background. But first it was Japan, right? Mm -hmm. These, these, there are these new powers and these new networks that are being formed mm -hmm. in the rest of the world. And so the reason I'm going on this long rant is because I feel like part of the, part of what I personally found kind of dissatisfying with Asian American, uh, I don't want to say Asian American studies, I don't want to like, you know, uh, make any enemies today, but as an Asian American in the U.S. Academy, I think, I, I did think about, you know, maybe I should study Asian American studies, uh, but I ultimately wound up studying Asia itself, but, mm -hmm. you know, I won't go into the book, but like I studied China and India. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way that I think, I think subconsciously, if I were to like, you know, sit on a couch and think about it, it's probably because I kind of felt like Asian American representation was as we said, kind of too superficial. Mm -hmm. We're basically just talking about colors or mm -hmm. like, you know, restaurants in a food court, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, but part of me was like, well, what's actually out there? Mm -hmm. and, and I think in the 21st century, um, I think a lot of Asian and Asian Americans are thinking, um, you know, it's not, it's not enough to just kind of focus on the U.S. context mm -hmm. anymore. So I don't know that, I don't know if that, if that if no, stimulates any thoughts No, you. absolutely. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, Andy, when, when I hear you talk about your trajectory to studying the history of China and the history of India in the 19th and early 20th century, right? Like, yeah. as an Asian American, right? So I, I, what I'm hearing as well is, like, this desire to know something more than what we find here about what it means to be Asian American. In a desire to find a kind of history to who you are, maybe. You know, I don't want to... Yeah, yeah. In, in, I don't want to like foreground way. the autobiographical yeah, yeah, too yeah, much, yeah, but sure. but certainly in my own work, it's it's always what's driven me, right? Is yeah, the yeah. desire to kind of figure out um, who, what are the histories that that animate us, right? What what are the kinds of historical narratives that bring who we are to life? Um, and these are the same histories that I think are really crucial to understanding both our desire for representation, but also the visual representation itself, mm. right? So. Um, one of the things, you know, in the book, I talk about fine artwork and photography, but I think that the argument that I make can be applied more broadly to popular culture and to media culture, right? Which is when, when we're looking at a politician like Kamala Harris or even a politician like Andrew Yang, they're presented to us as really singular people. Uh, for example, the rhetoric with Kamala Harris is always, she is the first black and South Asian woman to occupy um, the seat of vice president in the United States. So that language of like coming first mm. and occupying this seat at last, right? right? It's as if we can breathe a collective sigh of relief, you yeah. know, to say, oh, we're finally been represented. Right. And now that's it. We can just move on. Time to make room for the next group of right. minoritized, you know, communities who don't yet see ourselves. Yeah. But I think that it's precisely that language which um, does us a kind of disservice, right? Because Merely seeing ourselves in positions of power isn't actually going to give us, give us as minoritized communities the power that we need. Yeah. Representation is so important, right? I think to see ourselves is, you know, it's a really moving thing. But seeing ourselves in and of itself is not actually going to give us yeah. the kind of material power that we need to change the conditions of our lives. And so that's part of the argument that I'm making in this book, right? And do you, yeah. Do you, do you recall any particular moments where you felt, I mean, I don't know how close you followed the election, but you watched Kamala and you thought, 
oh my God, like this is the first time I've seen someone who looks like this do that. You know, like she had her sort of like big takedown moment in that first debate, if yeah. you recall, right? Yeah. Um, or because I can think of times where, I, you know, for all my cynicism about Andrew Yang, thinking like, wow, I've never seen someone who looks like him occupy this position of celebrity and yeah. garner respect. And so, you know, I think it's, I think it's, um, I don't know if it's important is the right word, but it's like it's honest yeah. to acknowledge that we, we still have these moments. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, I think if you really want to know the first time I knew Kamala Harris, yeah. we have to go kind of way back because she was running for San Francisco district attorney when I was in graduate school in the Bay Area. And so that was the first time that I came across uh, her and her name. history with her. Well, I'm just old. <laughs> you know, I, think, I just remember like this time in the 90s when I was living in San Francisco and her poster was plastered on every lamppost wow. when she was running for district attorney. Yeah. And I saw her name and I thought, oh, she must be Indian, right? Yeah. She looks South Asian. Yeah. But, you know, the Internet wasn't like the hype of information that it is now. So I really didn't have much of an idea until she began to be covered much more in the local newspapers. Yeah. But mixed with that sense of identification, like, oh, she must be Indian, yeah. was also the recognition like, oh, this woman has this record of police brutality. Like, of, Even back know, then, there was... I mean, like, yeah, there was chatter that. about this, yeah, yeah. or at least in the sort of mainstream media that I read, yeah. right? So it's a complicated relationship. It's both the identification, but also the disidentification. Yeah. And I think for me that those two feelings of identifying and disidentifying has, have kind of amplified yeah. in relation to South Asian Americans in politics. Yeah. Because after... I mean, much yeah. after Kamala Harris became DA of San Francisco, in fact, the first person who sort of catapulted into national politics was Bobby yeah, Jindal. Yeah. And after Bobby Jindal, it was Nikki Haley. Yes, so, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, now in Pennsylvania, we're, you know, lucky to have Nikhil Sabal. But, you, you know, it's, it is one of these moments where you're like, am I supposed to identify with this person? Yeah. Because... They're South Asian because their politics, uh, right. I'm talking about here, Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley, are right. completely opposite of what I believe in. If you were to rank South Asian politicians, do you even have anyone? Is there like even a number one or a two or a three in terms of politicians you like? Or but you, I like? Yeah. Or are they all Republicans or moderate Democrats? Um... I don't actually have the data for this, like yeah. whether there are more Republican, South Asian well, politicians. prominent ones, we can, I think we could say that. The more, the more prominent Bobby, ones? we know Nikki Haley. To be honest, you know, and again, I'm just sort of referring to media coverage of the politicians that I'm familiar, familiar with. But one of the things that really struck me about someone like Bobby Jindal coming to the foreground was how his name was Piyush and he changed it to Bobby mm. when he went to, uh, well, I guess when he was in like, school. Does Nikki have an... Nikki is a Namrita, oh. <laughs> Namrita Haley, and she goes by Nikki, which is yeah. her nickname. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Bobby is actually, he changed his name to yeah, Bobby, yeah. and he also converted to Roman Catholicism, yeah. right? So I knew that, yeah. Um, and that was a part of, I think, his, his transformation. One of, one of the interesting things about that story is that I think Bobby Jindal experienced that moment of conversion in college, at least from what I've read. I think for a lot of um, middle and upper middle class South Asian Americans in the United States, college is exactly that time where you're trying to find your footing about mm -hmm. like who you are and what you believe in and what you stand for. So I think it's just really interesting that, you know, Bobby Jindal went in one direction yeah, yeah. and many others have gone in another direction. But, but I think he's also one of these examples of how representation isn't enough. Like right. racial representation in and of itself is important, right. but it might not be enough, Yeah, you know? Yeah, so for you, as early on that you, you kind of became, what's the word, D disillusioned or disenchanted with this idea of necessarily supporting a politician because they were, oh, yeah. or a, a celebrity or anything, right? I, Just because they were South Asian. No, I'm actually super into, like, uh, for first, I think, I think of myself as an optimistic person, okay. right? <laughs> and the second is that I'm super into celebrity gossip and okay, celebrity okay, pop okay. culture. But I think that... Well, I mean, there's so many South Asian comedians. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. everyone from Aziz Ansari Aziz, to Mindy, Mindy Kaling yeah. to Hassan Minhaj, etc. Right. But so, OK, so that's another realm in which we have seen this tremendous representation. Yeah. Um, Asif Mandvi being one of the earliest comedians, for example, coming on The Daily on, Show. Right. On the Daily yeah. Show, right. Um, so does, do you get the fact I mean, you're talking about this generational thing at the beginning. Do you feel like the more you get, the more you feel like this isn't enough, this is... 
I think the more you get, the more you feel like, well, when is this going to end and when are we going to feel satisfied with seeing ourselves? And the fact that we haven't reached that end point, even with this mm. massive influx into public and popular culture and into political culture, yeah. means that there's something about what we're looking for yeah. that isn't going to be satisfied with what we see. Yeah. You know, I think that's a point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. yeah. Because as we were talking a little bit earlier about academic gossip, but yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, Andy, you just alluded to how your class is either an Asian Americanist or an Asianist. When I was in graduate school, my distinct memory was that all of my colleagues were Asian women or white men. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of white men studying Asia, <laughs> a lot, right? Yeah. But that's unthinkable in Asian American studies. It's true. Like for white people to penetrate that discipline mm -hmm. is sort of, yeah. you know, unthinkable. Yeah. And I think something that's happening along with is this enough for Asian Americans is, is that too much? Is, is this too many white people, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, right? And I think that's happening in food. Mm -hmm. You know, we're getting tired of white travel hosts. Mm -hmm. um, we're taking back the narratives of other cultures and... But yeah, I, I kind of want to go back to this moment of like the Asian versus Asian American representation mm. too, because I think like when K-pop is as big as it is, or mm. when Bhangra or Bollywood is mm -hmm. as big as it is, you know, how we negotiate, like, is that, like, that seems to be the more preferred place for us to become sort of seen. Like, I think there's a little bit of yeah. this unspoken additional pride around mm -hmm. sort of understanding something like a BTS phenomenon mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. I don't even know what the Korean American equivalent maybe dumbfounded or like, you know, um, yeah, Rex Daisy or, you know, and th not that they aren't important. They're great. But just I think in the general Americans, like guys, it's like manga and K-pop, but not Asian American music literature. Well, right. I, I take that back. Literature is a very glaring exception, but yeah music and media so so you're saying that um well i think i just said three things but yeah. something there's something in there for me around the colonializing yeah. of our representation by yeah. white brokers right, right, that right. we're finally sh kind of moving away from and kind of taking back our own narratives yeah. which gives us permission to now also be dissatisfied yeah. with Asian American representation, yeah. right? right? Like we want better representation yeah. because we're finally getting rid of colonialized. Not, yeah, yeah, so I've, the more I think about this, and I've only really started thinking about it, you know, uh, having joined this podcast that talks about Asian American issues, which is that um, it seems like there's kind of this, well, Asian studies and Asian American studies, and let's just talk about the university for a second. They seem like they come from very different places. Asian studies, and especially like Chinese studies, but all these other regional studies, they kind of come from this very um, top-down um, imperative, you know, to study, in China's case, the enemy, Japan's case, study the business partner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and there's always this kind of government-level way of understanding that part of the world. And as a result, you kind of expect, as you, it's not, it's not uh, unnatural to see that the, most of the people who populate that are tend to be people who are uh, kind of think like people close to power, mm -hmm. right? And might come from elite backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this country, that usually means like Northeast U.S. white men, mm -hmm. right? Asian American studies, it seems to me, as having kind of come out of this very West Coast, California, 60s moment, it almost seems like, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to offend someone, I'm sure. It seems like if you are Asian American, you should just go here. And just kind of do what you want uh, to explore some aspect of Asian American literature, art representation, etc. Mm. My advisor, um, who was, was a white guy, who I think was very smart and did, made a lot of interesting um, arguments in his study of Chinese diaspora. But I think mm. as a white guy, he just felt like he couldn't belong in Asian American studies. Mm. But he felt very much at home in this thing that later becomes global history or Chinese history. And at a very basic level, like I got along with him. I think I, I like a lot of his ideas, et cetera. But there is kind of this, uh, but the fact that I'm Asian American means like I have a different, I have a slightly different position, right? To studying mm -hmm. Chinese diaspora versus right. uh, my advisor. And um, the, but the, the interesting, thing is, like, interesting thing is I think, I didn't think too much about this when I was in college. I just kind of took these classes because I wanted to learn about China or Asia. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of Asian Americans take, you know, that 
Asian civilization, called right. Chinese civilization, South Asian civilization, but they don't wind up, for the most part, going into that as, yeah. a, as a profession. I mean, there are some more, and I, and I think when I was younger, I was more optimistic that Asian studies would be kind of yeah. not taken over by, but would have mm. higher representation, representation, right? Mm. But I think like there's just some sort of underlying thing that happens that kind of creates this self-selection or yeah. division where Asian studies just tends to be kind of this extension of the State Department and, yeah. and, and policy world, whereas Asian American studies is not. Yeah. And, and is more welcoming, I think, for people with that background. I mean, I think Asian American studies is super welcoming. I'm going to give a shout out to the Association for Asian American Studies, which has been a terrific home for so many of us in our scholarship. But I want to say two things, because I think that what's really interesting for me um, about Asian studies as a domain of study and Asian American studies is that these two fields are often pitted as a, in contrast to each other, mm -hmm. but they actually emerge at roughly the same geopolitical moment, right? So if the State Department, for example, has a vested interest in, in funding studies of China or Japan or even South Asia, right? That's happening at the same time that decolonization is happening in so many of these countries in Southeast and South Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And the decolonization is happening at the, at the same time as civil rights movements in the United States, which is fomenting not just Asian American studies, of course, but um, calls for black studies, indigenous studies, and Latinx studies, right? So there is a kind of transnational history that's binding together the... Um, the top-down, what you were calling, Andrew, the top-down approach that shapes Asian studies as a field, but also the bottom-up approach that's shaping Asian American studies as an emergent yeah. discipline. They're actually, even if they seem opposite to each other, they're yeah. actually happening at roughly the same time. And yeah. I just want to kind of share a kind of personal narrative sure. with you for a moment. So when I came to the United States as an international student, I went to Georgetown to study foreign service. Mm. And I went to Georgetown because I, you know, I had grown up in Japan and um, my, my own parents lived there for about 35 years. They were not diplomats, but we knew a number of um, diplomats. Certainly, I knew a number of diplomats yeah. and their families because I went to an international school. So I always thought, oh, wouldn't this be kind of amazing to have this job where you can be an emissary of your country? So I came to the United States to learn how to be an emissary of my country, India, even though I had never lived in India. I'd grown up in Japan, <laughs> right? And I was that kid taking that Asian civilization class mm -hmm. in college um, and thinking, surely there must be more, mm. right? There has to be more than like Asian civilization one and Asian civilization more, two that you take. More in what sense? Like more, more like More than like a two semester sequence oh, yeah. of a course, yeah. right? <laughs> and so then I, I ended up um, after college going to India to study history, to mm. study modern Indian right, history, right. which is when I realized how poor my knowledge of India was. I didn't realize that there was such a rich trove yeah. of scholarship yeah. and activism, yeah. you know, um, around colonial and post-colonial Indian history. And I learned so much from that. I also learned a lot from living in India yeah. as an adult, sure. yeah. you know. So I, I guess I, what I want to thread through is that like that I came to the United States with that State Department objective mm. of like learning more about Asia. Then I went to Asia and I realized when I was in Asia, there's so much more that's completely outside that State Department purview, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And it was while I was in Asia, it was while I was in India that I realized, you know, actually my heart is in studying um, diaspora. Mm. I'm part right. of the diaspora. Yeah. I'm not actually an Indian from India, yeah, yeah. you know? And so I brought that to my study of Asian American studies when, you know, when I came uh, came to the to California for graduate school. So I guess what I'm saying is we can connect these fields. Yeah. We just think about them as distinct disciplines. But yeah. I think your work certainly gestures towards some of this, yeah. these connections, and, and I hope mine does too, you know? I mean, you're an optimist. I'm perhaps the more pessimist view, which is, I mean, it's funny you say that because I think subconsciously I was also interested in studying diaspora, mm. which is how I wound up working with my advisor. Um, and it's like, well, if you want to study like, like East Chinese or Indian diaspora, how do you go about it? Do you do Asian American studies or do you do Asian studies? Mm -hmm. Well, for Asian American studies, there's a limitation there, right? Because mm -hmm. the field is not inherently, right? But in, in general, the center of gravity is the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And with Asian studies, the I would say like the geographical scope is more ambitious, yeah. 
but it has its own limitations. It's still, you know, if I'm doing Chinese diaspora, people still want you to focus on China, yeah. right? Maybe China, one other part of the mm -hmm. world. You're not going to be able to study like Chinese groups in Latin America mm. and, and in India and the United States and in Europe at the same yeah. time. So uh, it's like I, I, I totally understand what you're saying intellectually. Yeah, these things can meet. Yeah, but I think what I'm a little bit um, unsure about and is you know if institutionally these barriers are are too strong or the, yeah. I mean, these barriers certainly exist. And I guess the question is, in 30 years, will we say that these barriers have prevented people yeah. from doing the kind of, I mean, basically it sounds like both of us just want to do everything, right? Yeah. Like studying the whole world yeah. at all levels, right? Yeah. But these disciplines are set up to study, you know, either grassroots from the bottom or from the top, uh, grounded to this country or right. grounded to that country right. and so on and so forth. Such that, like, uh, you know, probably in different ways, I think we both feel like um, the stories of the groups we belong to yeah. don't ever really um, get to have their own field. Yeah. Right? We're always kind of in the margins of these bigger yeah. fields. Yeah, okay. So can I go back to and your um, another part of your question, which is about K-pop and BTS and Bhangra <laughs> and Bollywood, right? So, like, if our academic fields don't let us study these yeah. things the way we want to study them, like, one way of studying it is to study the circulation of these popular cultural texts, right? Which, so uh, the example I am, uh, my students actually have been talking to me a lot about K-pop recently, mm -hmm. but I am, I, yeah. I'm not going to touch it because... I know. We're, I think there are like, other people who like, know much more. We're, we're like over 30 years old. What are, <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm over 40 years old. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, so I, but the thing I can talk about is Bollywood yeah. movies, okay. right? Um, and music. Yeah. So, so here's like, you know, here's an interesting text where, um, again, when I was growing up, First, Bollywood wasn't like a math yeah. global phenomenon. It, it was movies that we watched on Betamax right. or VHS tapes right. in the privacy of our own home. Is there is there a, a dis, an Indian discourse of why couldn't we do what K-pop is doing? Like, why couldn't we take over the world? I think, with I'm Bollywood? sure many Indians think we have taken over the world with Bollywood. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if there's a discourse of yeah, why yeah. we couldn't. I, I think they're say, just... I think even statistically, right? Like, just to share just a quick anecdote that yeah. Bollywood does outsell... I think all... But not, but like we're talking about, per, like India has a billion people, Korea yeah. has like 30 million people, right? Right. Like yeah. nobody's keeping up with the Korean culture industry. Right. Yeah, well, but, but I think Bollywood is getting there. I mean, for okay. example, with its outreach in North Africa. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. North and uh, West and East Africa and South Africa. So in fact, <laughs> okay. much of the African continent. Okay. There's also just an added funny thing. I just read a statistic that... Um, the highest selling CD yeah. of like last year or two years ago. What? What? Sorry, it was the year. A CD. CD. Yeah. So the last. <laughs> so not, okay. Uh, what was it? The year Lemonade, Beyonce's Lemonade yeah. came out, okay. I think, or just a year when a lot of other things are happening yeah. in pop music. The highest selling CD in the world was Namie Amuro, a Japanese pop singer. Oh. Okay. And it has nothing to do with her popularity. It's just the CD format. Like, yeah, it's exactly. where people That's buy so these things. So, you know, I was just thinking when you mentioned Betamax, but I also <laughs> remember watching, like, home-taped VHSs of Japanese dramas yeah. and then K-dramas. Yes. But that, that mode of circulation and tracking it and, yes. you know... Yeah. So I think There's that, you know, there. this is the interesting thing about representation, right? To go... And Anne's question, I think, was about maybe we're looking at these other texts instead of looking at Asian American representation. And I think that's a really interesting question because it's making me think about how cultural texts from Asia have become the commodities through which young Asian Americans identify right. themselves, right. right? So for example, um, I cannot imagine a South Asian American Students Association event without Bollywood music mm -hmm. and dance, right. Right. right? And that's coming not from here, that's coming sort of from there, right. but it's being reproduced here in the United States in some really innovative and interesting ways, right? It's, it's being repurposed to say this is a music or this is a movie. This is the idiom of romance and love uh -huh. that I identify with. Well, these are the ones that are made in India that right, are like, exported here. Right, right? that yeah. is Bollywood movies, you know, uh, these sort of you know, right. the three-hour-long spectacles yeah. of family and love <laughs> and death and all of that, right? That 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 these movies produced in India become right. the language through which young South Asian Americans can identify and see themselves, 
represented. Mm-hmm. Right? And you think your students do actually strongly identify with it? I'm not sure if all my students do. Yeah. I think some of them do. Okay. Um, and I, I certainly think in the early 2000s that was true, maybe more so than now. You know, um, are they in uh, Netflix yet? Are they infiltrating streaming services? The the movies, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you can watch all. Uh, at least in maybe because of because I'm South Asian, Netflix yeah. keeps recommending I mean, these movies to me. Yeah. No. So, so I think that's one thing. I, and you know, K-pop, of course, has become this global phenomenon, right? That yeah. not just Asian Americans, but Black and Latinx young right. people are also, you know, going to BTS That's concerts. That's the interesting so thing on. about it that they've tried to. As far as I could, I'm not a scholar expert on this at all. But a, it's it's not this innocent free market thing, right? Yeah. As I'm sure you know, there was an actual like government effort right. to promote it, which isn't uh, isn't the case with all these other you know national culture industries. Mm. And then I don't know if I said A or one B or two. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it does seem to be appealing to non-Koreans because there's a limit on how many Koreans there are in this world, right? Compared to Chinese and, 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 and Indian, Indian people. Yeah. So it has to, in order to be successful, it has to appeal to non-Koreans, right. which is interesting. In the comments, yeah. and just a reminder to folks who are tuning in, please don't be shy and leave your questions in the chat room. I will read out what I think is, you know, um, as long as you're not saying anything silly. <laughs> Also, I'm so curious what the algorithm gives you on Netflix. I'm picturing it's like all, it's all my wife's and like reality shows. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But the question or the comment is from Chris L. Working. Uh, I feel like mainstream South Korean music is heavily influenced by the U.S. So the mm. style of music that comes out of South Korea is accessible to Western taste. I mean, and there's something there too, mm. right? Like certainly... In Japanese literature, there was this moment when they were specifically writing with understanding it would eventually Murakami. potentially get translated into English because Murakami was so big. Yeah. And that generated a whole style of writing. Yeah. But what do you think? No, yeah, this has been documented that, I don't know, if you, if you want to go like hardcore, like essentialist, you could say all Asian pop is basically a, a reproduction. Well, not out of all. Like the, the East Asian pop that I, that I know of is like, reproducing like hip-hop and the and the beats from hip-hop and like yeah. the you know, like rapping style and the and even so sort of like the dance and the choreography right and there have been like, accusations of cultural appropriation yes. and then it goes back to like well you know like who actually owns culture and all that stuff yeah. and those sort of like endless debates right i, I think that's been documented that mm-hmm. but then the question i guess becomes um I don't know the answer to this. Like, why does a BTS or why does a Korean... Does, is there a specific appeal of Korean, of K-pop to non-white but not Korean mm-hmm. uh, uh, audiences yeah. around the world because they identify with... They just kind of cheer for them because yeah. they're not white, basically, right? Um, even if they themselves are not Korean and, and they don't mm-hmm. know any Korean. And that, that seems to be a thing that apparently, I, you know, someone else would know far more than I would. But yeah. that, that's been... An, Interesting thing to learn about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I do think, I think that there's a danger in saying that Asian popular culture is oriented entirely towards a Western market or that yeah. Asian popular culture is derivative of Western yeah. mass yeah, media, yeah, yeah. right? I think that's a kind of dangerous thing to say because mm-hmm. then no it sort of deprives agency from Asian and Asian American cultural producers, right? As if we can only ever be derivative or a mimic For of sure. something else that's true. And I think, actually, this this question is kind of bringing up the the a larger question for me, which is this notion of authenticity, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is, I think, behind the question of representation is always this question of authentic authenticity, right? We started our conversation today, Andrew, by talking about Kamala Harris, and you know, part of when I was talking about the photograph of her and her family is like this this um, point about well, how authentically Asian is she? Yeah. How authentically South Asian is she? Yeah. I think there's also been some commentary around how authentically black is she, but we are familiar with that question from Barack Obama's presidency, right? Mm -hmm. That question in a way never got resolved. It kept opening up. So race and racial representation always carries with it this question of like, what's authentic enough? Yeah. And yeah. And so I think part of the reason why we might be saying we don't really see ourselves, no matter how much we see ourselves in like Netflix or popular culture or K-pop or whatever yeah, yeah. is because 
when we're looking for the authentic representation, we want to find like the exact replica of who we are. And yeah. anything less than that falls short. Yeah. You know? I'm just not sure that that's like a fair standard yeah. for the kinds of representations that we're seeing. I do. You, I think one of the theses in your book is also arguing that this um, obsession with the vis visual representation comes from this imperial surveillance state, right? Yeah. So I think there's also something to be said about how we've been trained for so long to become invisible or to pass that now it doesn't feel there's, you know, this is generational behavior change, right? Just to understand that what you're seeing, you can actually believe in what you're seeing. Yeah. You know, because for so long it was, how do I get away with being who I am? Yeah. And now it's, how do I, how am I to be seen for who I am? Or if I could jump onto that, the other thing I was kind of thinking when I was reading through your book was to kind of like translate your academic argument to real life is that, um, you know, you were talking about in your book, like these 19th century ethnographies, which are like, they have these photographs of like quote unquote savages that are clearly meant to be consumed by white British audiences, That's not right. by other Indian That's audiences. And so... I've had this thought when I see like, you know, Andrew Yang or Asian, just like Asian art uh, on screen where I'm like, oh, this is like, I enjoy this. And mm -hmm. this is like my people. This looks like me. Right. Mm -hmm. But on another level, I kind of feel uncomfortable because then I think like, what are white people going to think about this? Right. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't made for white people. And now, right. now, I, now I don't know like how I feel about that right. because in my, when growing up or just like in your household amongst your friends and family, you'll see like, you know, um, I don't know, like a one car Y film or something, right? right? Like something that's, or like Crazy Rich Asians, which is like right. passed around by my Asian friends. And then you think, well, what happens when Crazy Rich Asians becomes something that like white audiences are getting really into? Like, how do yeah. I, I don't know how I, I don't even know how to react to that. Yeah, but they did get, they did get very into it. Yeah, I know. I, I, still don't know <laughs> I, just, I still don't know how I feel about yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really important point because I think, you know, whenever we as, you know, Asian immigrants in the U.S. look at representations of ourselves, we're also keeping one eye out for, for how sure, we're yeah. being looked at by others or by the dominant my sure, majority, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Which is why it's sometimes like it's actually, my impulse, my impulse is actually just to like not, just to hide uh, and to like, and not like share these things with the rest of the world. Okay, well, my impulse is the opposite, which okay. is to look more obsessively. Okay. <laughs> Well, we're winding down into the hour, so I just want to shift and downgrade us a little bit to, um, or downshift, not downgrade, downshift. <laughs> <laughs> we can't go any lower. Upgrade and downshift, yeah. Um, that's a 60 seconds reference or a Fast and Furious reference, I'm not sure. But um, I want to close out by just bringing it back to, so many thoughts came through my mind as you all were talking about, like, my first touch points as an Asian American, as a Japanese American, and then as a Japanese Korean American, and then holding multiple nationalities and whatnot. But a thought I had real, just, it was like that Proustian Madeline, I hate that mm -hmm. metaphor, but I just, mm -hmm. it's out of my mouth, so it's already out there. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> there was a Dodgers pitcher named Kaz Ishii, and when his jersey came out, I mm. immediately bought three. Mm. Like I just had to have something that had the word Ishii on it. Yeah. Even though it's, a, you know, obviously a pretty common Japanese yeah. name and yeah, it was yeah. just so exciting. So I wanted to do a prompt at the end. So the first thing, your first cultural sort of touch point when you were like, oh, I can't believe I'm seeing somebody that's like me. Or did you have anything like that where you went out and bought three jerseys with your name um, on it? This is not exactly answering your question, but when I was young, I realized Long Island University, the initials are LIU. <laughs> So I went, on, I went out to Long Island, to Brooklyn and bought several LIU gear. Oh my God. Pieces, which I don't know what that tells about me. I'm kind of weird. <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah, I'll try to think of the real answer. Um, I have to say that I really wanted to buy, though I, I, I was, okay. Though I was so ambivalent about her DA run in the 1990s, um, when Kamala Harris won this election, I wanted to buy like five Kamala Harris t-shirts. And there's this t-shirt that says Kamala in Tamil and Biden in English. Mm. It's online and you can buy it for like $10. And I thought, I really want that t-shirt. But I didn't buy it because, in fact, I don't actually write Tamil. Mm. So I only know that it says Kamala because Amazon told me it does. <laughs> um, yeah. That's funny. You didn't want to be the person with a Chinese tattoo you can't read? <laughs> no, I didn't want to be the person who is Tamil, who right, can't right, read right, the right, language right. on her own t-shirt. Right, right. 
Uh, the other one would just be Lynn Sanity, which I could talk for hours about. Oh, but, oh yeah. But, oh, my God. Yeah. We should resume. But I was already, I was already, what was I, like, over 30 years old at the time. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's not like a formative experience or anything. Yeah. Mm. Oh, we have a late question from Aisha Khan. Um <laughs> From 12 Gate. Hi, yeah, we all love and uh, know Aisha. Hi, everyone. Loving this talk. Besides authenticity and representation, can you also speak about politics and the kind of politics finding its way in Asian American comedy and also in Bollywood? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Asian American you know, comedy in Bollywood? In comedy in Bollywood. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I mean, I'm just thinking of something we were saying about how all the politicians seem to be leaning right, but the comedians are all on these, like, left liberal, you know, news parody shows, right? Or started there, mm -hmm. at least. Yeah. Um, they're all quite moderate, and they're all quite, you know, identity first. That's my, that's my impression, mm -hmm. right? Um, like, none of them came out for Bernie, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. or, or, or even Warren, as mm -hmm. far as I could tell. So that, I mean, that's like, a, I don't know, that's like the perpetual weirdness where, like, Andrew or Kamala or, like, the closest to you but like politically i'm like i mean i'm personally right i'm like i'm over there mm -hmm. with the 75 year old white guy <laughs> and uh mm -hmm. you know mm. but i think aisha's um question about comedians i think is a um is a really interesting one um last year when i taught a class on uh, i taught an undergraduate survey on south asians in america one of the week's themes was is race funny and we were we watched a whole bunch of south asians in comedy right yeah. And all my students were on a first-name basis with these comedians and totally identified with them. Yeah. But we could not figure out what made Asian-American right. comedians so funny and so successful or so notorious as the case might Can be. Can I ask what you think about Russell Peters? Russell mm. Peters. Is he, is he canceled or? I mean, Russell Peters, I mean... He's this comedian from the he, 90s that was really good at doing Indian accents. That's right. Well, like all kinds of accents. accents. All kinds right. of accents, right? And it was hilarious to me 20 years ago, but I, I haven't heard his name in a while. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when I was growing up, there was a British comedy show called Mind Your Language. Mm. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it was premised on a white British teacher who taught a classroom full of immigrants from Spain, <laughs> from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, etc. And the whole thing was about how they were trying to learn English and the, the joke was their accents, right? Of course. So 20 years after that, it's Russell Peters who's mining the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So of course, when I first saw Russell Peters, like as an undergrad, right, or in grad school, I laughed because that was a thing I thought I'm supposed to laugh at. That's yeah. a joke. But now we've got a whole different brand of comedy, right? Where someone like Hassan Minhaj, right, is yeah. really earnestly trying to say, right. your jokes about my race or my religion are not funny. Yeah. Your jokes meaning white people's right, jokes, right? right. right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to make my own jokes, which are super heartfelt about my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's a real transition. So you think it's trending in the right direction? I think, I think it's trending in a different direction. A different I don't direction. know about the right direction. Yeah. yeah. I'll just share a last question. Um, and I think uh, I encourage Cassidy Chang to read the books because like, this is a very, very relevant question. Since establishing that yearning for perfect representation is a site of disappointment, do we need to tackle the origins of that yearning in order to stop constantly searching for it? Yeah. If this is a Cassidy Chang that I know, I think she might be from Swarthmore. <laughs> okay. Um, Big so, up Swarthmore. <laughs> hi, Cassidy. Um, so, yes, I think the answer to that question is yes. And um, what I what I try and do in Unseeing Empire is to kind of come to, um, not the beginning, but a, a kind of origin point for why we might want to desire to see ourselves in the way we do. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of condense 300 pages in a second, one of the things that I'm trying to argue is to say we want to see ourselves represented in better or more fulfilling ways because in these histories of empire and colonialism that shape visual representation of racial subjects, the ways that we're most familiar with seeing ourselves is as degraded or abject or non-human. Mm. So we're always trying to restore a sense of selfhood to ourselves through these visual representations, as if the more we see ourselves, the more human we'll become. But maybe the entire project of representation is something yeah. that we need to kind of sit back yeah. and think about. Mm -hmm. Or if I could yeah, on that really quickly, like I think, I mean, something we talk about on the podcast a lot is that 
I think you're right about that, and I think that impulse leads to people uh, like Asian art and maybe all POC are kind of trying to represent yourself as respectable as possible. Yeah. And perhaps, and I think this is like behind Love Hassan's comedy, right? Yeah. Like, I'm respectable, don't laugh at me, which is fair, but then it, then it, it kind of clashes against if you have any sort of, I think it could provoke questions about class yeah. that yeah. get, uh, you know, pushed aside yeah. if it's simply about being respectable or not in, in the eyes of the white audience. Yeah. And I think that's, I think if you're going to be an optimist, I think you could say it's good that this kind of respectable comedy or respectable yeah. representation has emerged because yeah. then it allows us to kind of see, hopefully, a reaction where people are introducing these questions of class or, you know, get back to Kamala, right? Like yeah. um, social, social, social divisions that um, might not be that visible mm-hmm. if there's no representation whatsoever. Yeah, and I think... One of the things that, I think one of the things that's really key to understanding this problem of representation is to really remind ourselves as viewers that we're not passive consumers of the things that we see, right? Like we need to be in active engagement, by which I mean in like constructive criticism, right? Like that we as viewers get to develop our own interventions in relation to what we're seeing. We don't need to take what's out there and say, oh, well, that's it. We right. can also sort of engage with it um, in in ways that are um, critical, and mm-hmm. that's okay too. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's a great place to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Makayaki and thank Andy. You. That was so great. And for all of you who tuned in, thank you for joining us. Um, we enjoyed your commentary, especially Mama Mama.